0: God damn it, really? Hey, everybody. Welcome to I'm Okay, You're Okay, I'm Not Okay, You're Not Okay. With me, Bob Schneider, and your other host, Clint Wells. You're welcome.
1: Well, here we are, yet another episode of I'm Okay, You're Okay, I'm Not Okay, You're Not Okay, and I wanted to lead off with some emails, because here's what we've started to carve out in this world. I don't know what we're going to call it, the the IOK okay advice corner, uh, the call-in advice line, What are we calling this, Bob? Because people, they want to know, they want to know. Have you ever
0: heard of a thing called a Swiss Army knife? I have. We're we're the fucking Swiss Army knife of podcasts. Now, you've got podcasts like you know, My Favorite Murder, where all they do is they fucking chit chat, chitty chat, chitty chat, and then they talk about murder. Have we talked about murder on this podcast? Of course we have. (laughs) Then they have podcasts (laughs) where they talk about scientific adventures, whatever they are. Have we talked about, of course we have. Is there anything that we, have we talked about poetry? Oh, on our last podcast, we spent about half of it discussing poetry. Have we talked about self-help? Yes. Uh, psychological problems? Yes. Uh, erectile dysfunction? Yes. Penis size? Yes. Farts? Yes. Basically, anything that you could have a podcast about, we not only talk about, but are the leading example of what to do. When you talk about whatever subject is we've, we've talked about. Basically, we are the creme de la creme, as they say in France, of all podcasting genres. Cool. So, so uh, that's the answer.
1: So, this first email is from Jay Middleton, who I recognize as a homie of mine. What up, Jay? Uh, he says, hey, daddies. Bob, I know you love a certain German hip-hop group that I completely forgot the name of, which is Dyke Kent, by the way. Uh, but knowing that you lived in Germany, you must be very fluent in it. Have you written songs in German and is it a whole new ball game? I grew up listening to Rammstein and recently I went and looked at English translations and would try to follow along with the songs and realized, holy shit, you can't sing this in English because of the wording. The words phrase out completely differently. Would love to get your take on it. Sincerely, Jay. It's an interesting, uh, I, I'm trying to imagine you writing a song in German. Do you know the language enough to write a song no. in German?
0: No, not at all. I mean I can understand it and I can tell you what part of Germany somebody's from when they speak and I can watch a movie and know if somebody's German or or an American pretending to be German. But no, I mean no. I mean I might be able to write Ramstein lyrics in German because that <laughs> shit is fucking real basic, but uh Du host. It is uh it's definitely no. I don't know it I don't know it enough to to write anything decent in German, but I do appreciate German music. Uh, I went through a phase a few years ago where I was just listening to German rap.
1: Uh, Yeah, I remember you got me into Peter Fox.
0: Yeah, Peter Fox. and and uh, The thing that Germans do, same thing that Japanese do, I don't know why those cultures are similar in this regard. They'll take something and they'll just fucking perfect it. And the Germans embraced, uh, hip hop back in the late eighties, early nineties, and just took to it. Like they went crazy. They love, uh, beat boy, or what are they called? The, uh, break dancers. They love graffiti. They love rap and they just kind of perfected it and became, I think the best rappers in the world. And, and you and I see a lot of rappers in the United States that sound to me like German rappers. Like, I'd be listening to a German rapper, and then a year or two later, I'd hear some American rappers. And I'm like, oh, they're emulating that. So, I, Dijkkind, I don't think are doing anything in terms of like breaking the, you know, breaking new ground in rap, but. The thing I like about what they do is they're just funny.
1: They're funny, yeah. They
0: look at life and they see how absurd it is, and then they comment on it with their music and their art. Who
1: are the most famous German artists? Gotta be Rammstein's Gotta Be up there. And then, like, Kraftwerk?
0: Uh, No, Seed, I think, is the biggest German band right now. They're kind of a rap, reggae band. Peter Fox is is the lead singer of Seed.
1: Ah, and Uh, he's huge, yeah. But he's not huge here, though. But, like, Rammstein's huge in the whole world. So, Kraftwerk's like known everywhere,
0: right? But Kraftwerk was like seventies, eighties. Yeah. Rammstein was nineties, two thousand, huge band. But uh, and and there's probably big bands right now that I don't know about because Peter Fox, you can't get that music here. Um, Die can't, you can't get it here. Oh, you
1: know uh, what? I, uh, Scorpions, right? Scorpions were German, weren't they?
0: Huge, huge band in Germany. Uh, the thing about Germany is when I was growing up there. In the 80s, uh, metal, hard rock and metal music wasn't very big in the United States. I mean, it it was always big on the fringe, but it wasn't like mainstream. But in Germany, like in the 80s, ACDC would go to Germany and they would play a soccer stadium. 80,000 people would come see ACDC. ACDC, if they played in Detroit in 1980, they'd be playing for maybe 2000 people you know mm-hmm. so so uh heavy metal and uh or whatever you want to call it what do you call that score score vc heavy metal hard rock heavy metal yeah that's all, that's always been big in in Europe and it's huge in Europe still to this day. So Ramstein obviously fed into that and they're huge.
1: We got another email and this one's pretty short and I'm not sure what it's relating to. Maybe you can tell me it's from Jed Moffat and it says, I remember seeing Sisyphus in the rearview mirror. He says, this is the coolest lyric I've heard in a long time. Is that one of your lyrics? Yeah. It's from a song called Sisyphus that I just wrote a couple weeks ago. All right. And what's that about?
0: Um, what is it about?
1: I, you know. Who, who was Sisyphus? Is that the dude who rolled the stone up the hill? Yeah, that's the stone up the hill guy.
0: It's just a song about existential angst and being alive and and looking for somebody to kind of, you know, snuggle up to and hang out with and make life better.
1: Well, that sounds nice. What's the what's the what's the imagery significance of seeing Sisyphus who's known for futilely rolling a stone up a hill. What's the what's the imagery about seeing it in the rear view? You're, you're moving on from that idea of the futility of life? Well, I mentioned it
0: in the verse before I said, so the, even though the music isn't really country, the, I feel like the lyrics are country. So the second verse says, when I said I needed a cold one, I didn't mean a shoulder. I need a hand here with this boulder. I've been pushing up the same hill since I can't remember when. And then the next verse I'm saying, I'm not sure where all the bodies are. Let's put our heads together and see if we can find the car. I think we parked it somewhere around here. Oh, yeah, I remember seeing Sisyphus in the rearview mirror. Hmm. And so it just calls back to the verse before and makes me realize, God damn, I'm a good fucking writer. (laughs) God damn it.
1: You are a good writer.
0: And then the next line after that is, I wish I could tell you life would always be so sunny that all you'd need with some sunscreen beer. It's funny how time will make all that good thinking disappear. Huh. I've just noticed it more and more as I've gotten older. I'll look at young people, teenagers, ke- people in their early 20s and they're just so full of like they're just their eyes are so f- like they just think like oh all the door, all the possibilities are there for me. My whole life is ahead of me anything that i want i can get like it's all there and then the older and older you get just the more all of that stuff that you dreamed about just goes away day after day it just gets stripped away from you until you're just left with the life that you that you've that you've led and it's just not the life that you imagined when you were younger and you're just kind of left with what you've got and it's such a weird thing and and it's all in your head Because the same possibilities that you had when you're a teenager in your early 20s, you have at every moment of your life, for your entire life. But once you've been doing something for a long time, you just think, well, this is who I am, and this is what I'm going to continue to do, and I don't see it changing. But it could change. Today can be the day where you change everything. My cousin is a doctor. He's a very successful anesthesiologist. He owns a he owns a plastic surgery. It's not plastic surgery, it's like everything up to plastic surgery, like, you know, microdermabrasion and what's that shit where they inject you with shit, with like collagen, botox, yeah. botox and Yeah, right. Like fillers and he, so he does all that. Very successful. Him and his uh, partner run that. He makes a ton of money as an anesthesiologist. He lives in San Francisco. He's got a great life. But all he wants to do is make art. He just wants to be creative and make art. And he just can't pull himself away from that money
1: that he's making as a doctor. Right. He can't he couldn't even save up enough of it to take off and like pursue that dream.
0: I mean, but the thing is, he could do it. Like, he could do it today. He would just have to, he couldn't live the way he's been living for the last 30 years. Right. He,
1: he, I guess that's the deal. You make more money, but then your your the margins of your life sort of correlate with that. So it's not he like-
0: He could sell this house and move to Wyoming and buy a real shitty house in Wyoming and live comfortably
1: for the rest of his life and make nothing but art. But you know what people love, though? People love to have a reason to not do something they're scared of sure i mean it's like a beast that they love i don't think they love it the way they love fucking mcdonald's but i just mean you can you can put yourself to sleep on a lot of you know dark nights of the soul by saying to yourself this great dream i have well i can't do it because i i have this job or i have these obligations or people love a good excuse not to just take the chance
0: right well the other thing too is if you never take the chance you always have this little idea that oh if i If I would have just taken the chance, I could have done this thing. Right, and that—that's like a little diamond that you hold on to.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: Because guess what happens if you take the chance and try to do the thing that's your little hope and dream, and you fail? Yeah. Then what have you got? Then you have to live. You have to deal with it. Then you got nothing. Then you—you did your little dream. You failed, and then what are you?
1: The, The truth is, when you do a thing and you fail at it. Everything you're afraid of, Tom Petty has this great lyric where he says something like, all the things I'm afraid of never happened anyway. The thing you're most afraid of is doing the thing that you love and failing is that you'll die. But you don't. And so you just get back up and either learn from it or pivot or try something else or try it again.
0: Here's the wonderful thing about doing something that you're afraid of failing at. I've never been a type of person where I would go into a club and see a lady that I thought was attractive and go up and talk to her. Never have I done that in my entire life. I just can't do it. I'm too afraid. Which is wild. You would now, be, you would be I say great I'm at never, it. I, I say I've never done it, but I have made myself do it a couple times. And what's happened is I've gone up and said, hey, how are you doing? And they've shut me down. But just the fact that I did the thing I was afraid of, I felt good. Even though I got shut down, I did the thing I was afraid of, and I felt good about myself. So I mean, I wish I wish I could say I took that lesson and ran with it in my life, but it's just not the case. I I still don't do so many things that I'm afraid afraid of all the time.
1: Well, and lessons don't really work that way. It's not like you learn the one great lesson and then you're you you have to learn the same lesson a million times sometimes.
0: And it depends. It depends on who you are, what type of person you are. I'm
1: trying to find this Raymond Carver poem that I was thinking about what you were saying with like my way of framing that is like you spend your whole life waiting for something to happen and then before you know it you're at an age where things are less likely to happen right like tom petty's not going to call me anymore because he died um what i mean is for me to play guitar for him um but uh you know radiohead hasn't called me yet those kinds of things when i was 23 and starting to play guitar and touring i thought oh well one day fiona apple will call or Nora Jones, well, they didn't, you know, and now I'm 37 and are they going to, uh, it's less likely now, but I did find this, uh, it was this Raymond Carver form. He was talking about that and he said his big, you know, he has this gut punch usually at the end and he, this is probably after he was diagnosed with cancer. He's like, now, now the only thing I really know is that I, whatever is left, I have to love it. I have to love what's left. And the idea being knowing it and feeling it are two different things. So he's like, I have to lean into and learn how to love what's left because that, that's my only salvation. And I thought, wow, holy shit. You, t- you, look, you can't sit around waiting for what might happen later that will be easy to love. That's over. Now you, you look around at what's left and you have to love that. You have to love what you made. You have to love who you are and what you do. Your family, your life, your house, your fucking dog, your friendships. I have to love what's left. Instead of waiting Again, for it to to turn into something else, right? That's
0: it's not powerful. that you. It's not that you have to do it because you don't have to do it. But you're you're you don't have the choice of loving something else. You have the choice of loving the thing that you have or not loving the yeah, thing you have. You does, don't have right. that. You don't have the choice of like, oh, I'm not going to love this. I'll love this other thing. That choice is gone now. So you only have you only have the choice of loving the thing that you have or not loving the thing
1: yeah, you have. Yeah. The emphasis wasn't like compulsory, like I have to, like I'm being commanded to. It was like, yeah, this is all I have. Right. It's 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 my imperative, you know? Right. And
0: I mean, you could say that about every moment of your life. Life is what it is right now. And the choice you have is you can love it and feel good and feel the sunshine of existence. Or you can hate it, wish it was different, uh, despise it, beat on it with your anger, hoping that you're gonna change it, which you won't. Your anger won't change a thing. It'll just deny you access to that sunshine of your spirit. So always the choice every day, at every moment in your life is Accept what is and love it, not because it is what it is, but because you have that opportunity at that moment to love the thing or don't love it and not feel good. So it's up to you feel good or don't feel good.
1: One of the big conflicts, it's so funny to think about now because Jesus Christ, before we had a kid, our conflicts seemed like Disneyland. But one of our big conflicts before we had a kid with me and my wife was she wasn't so great at the dishes. Okay, so I'm usually pretty good about the dishes, but I would go on tour. I would go on tour with you for a week or two weeks and I'd come back and not only were the same dishes in the sink, but new dishes are in the sink. Her dishes with eggs on them that are hard to get off. It was such a big deal for me at a time because it, for some reason, I interpreted it as disrespect. She just knew I was going to come home and do them and I'm working up to something more substantial than this. So I was mad about it, and we would even talk about it in fucking therapy, dude, where I'm like, I need you to do the dishes more, especially when I'm out of town. They're your goddamn dishes. I don't want to come home and do your fucking dishes. And it got to a point where I was like, my wife can live in a house where the dishes aren't done. I have some problem where I can't. I can't even sleep. And I got to a point where I started to realize, well, okay, like here's my baby steps out of this. I'm like, well, I have a problem. And if I and here's what needs to happen if if I needed those dishes done so I can sleep, Daddy's got to do it. But it was right. coming from resentment and anger, and I would do the dishes and be mad at my wife. I would be mad at her. That slowly has transitioned, right. and I'm like five years beyond this now. But when I do the dishes now, and we've just been through so much together and overcome so much, she's put up so much of my shit. But when I do the dishes now, I actively see it as me loving my wife. All the anger and hatred is completely evaporated and i i actually either feel nothing when i do it like i just feel sort of dutiful like i need this thing needs to get done and i'm gonna do it i now enjoy it and i see it as me loving my wife and not even as some hero i've i've fuck up in a lot of other ways and she doesn't even necessarily feel love for me doing the dishes she needs love in other ways that i fail at but that is an interesting thing for me to go from being mad demanding that she be someone she's not then being like, well, fuck it. You're never going to do that. Do that. I'll do it anyway. And hating her for it to like a complete change where it's not just neutral. It's not just apathetic. It's like, this is a way, a small way for me to transform this feeling into love. And that bleeds out into a lot of different areas of our relationship. Well,
0: I relate to that. I can't even tell you because I was going to even start an Instagram where I was just going to take pictures of messes in our house that I can't even begin to imagine that I see every day. It's like it's like somebody who lives in a worn, torn part of the world and they see dead bodies all the time
1: on the street. It's like uh the movie Stalker. Did you ever see Stalker Tarkovsky? I,
0: I haven't, but it okay. it would be like walking through the streets of a worn, torn city and seeing a hand or a head <laughs> or a dead a dead. Pregnant lady, whatever. Oh my god! That's that's like my life. My life is waking up and walking through the house and just seeing stuff that I'm just like, what? Because my daughter is six and my wife is fine with hoarder style hoarder style messes. And me myself as a person, as the person that I am, I I can't live in that environment. It's not good. Like I don't feel good in that environment and part of that is like the kitchen. Like, My wife will create the most gigantic messes when she cooks. Dude, when I cook, when I'm done cooking, the kitchen is
1: spotless. I'm the exact same way.
0: As I'm cooking, I'm cleaning everything. I'm keeping, and I can't even start cooking unless I've cleaned the kitchen. So the kitchen's spotless when I start, and when I finish, spotless.
1: I'm the exact same way.
0: My wife will cook on top of a carton of of dead squirrels. And (laughs) when she's done, the kitchen looks like somebody fucking, like it was like a gag, like jackass, where they came in and fucked your whole kitchen up. And then she can go to sleep, wake up the next day, go to sleep, wake up the next day, go to sleep, wake up the next day, and never have touched a thing in that
1: kitchen. I know, my wife will just cook on top of all that.
0: And me, when I wake up every day, I go into the kitchen because I don't have the energy at night to clean up the kitchen after she, after all the stuff that happens. But every morning I wake up and I put all the dishes in the dishwasher. I clean up the kitchen. I, I do it every day. And some days I'm like pissed off that I'm doing it. And then some days I go, I'm not doing this for her. I'm not doing this to teach her a lesson. I'm doing it because I get to do it. I have a house. I have dishes. I get to clean them. It's cathartic for me. It keeps me from being super depressed. My wife gets ultra depressed. And I tell her, I'm like, you know, if you were to go into the kitchen and start cleaning it up, you would immediately feel less depressed. Because if I just woke up and didn't clean this kitchen, I would be depressed.
1: Well, I, I, you know, I I can't armchair uh, psychoanalyze Laura, so you'll have to speak to this. But I think there's a sense with my wife where there's a, there's a, and my wife is a very put together woman and a, and a brave and strong woman who works hard and all this. But I do think there's a part of her world, more the, an emotional part of her world that is feels out of control to her. And I think there is a sense to where the physical chaos around her doesn't register the way it does to me because it mirrors a little bit of emotional chaos for her. I don't know why, but it's just difficult for my wife to like clean up after herself or to or to register a big mess. Her office is kind of wild, kind of wildly messy. I, I my studio, dude. If I do a session all day, I'll have six guitars out, a bass, my lap steel, a charts, a coffee cups. But at the end of the day, it looks like the first day we moved in, and I can't really work unless the clutter is cleared away. Because guess what? My life's cluttered as fuck. But for me, it's like almost like the illusion of control to declutter my external world. It gives me a sense of control. Uh, yeah. I, and I think that's probably your... When I'm cleaning the dishes, because I do the same thing too. It's not even all just me loving her. Sometimes I'm doing it because I'm like, well, hey, baby, this is like my medicine.
0: Yeah, it's medicine.
1: It's, it's like so sense of order. Yeah, right. Yeah.
0: Like when I used to feel like back in the day, back in the day when I was kind of like, Lying to everybody about, back in the day when I would be like, you know, cheating and fooling around and stuff, um, in my relationships, I would feel bad about it. Or even before that, when I was drinking and I would just get, you know, wasted and say stupid things to people or whatever, when I was drunk, when I felt really bad about myself, I found like cleaning was like this way of restoring some kind of order to the universe. And even now that that I'm not really doing any of that behavior anymore, I still have this feeling like, okay, the world is completely chaotic and fucked up and I have no control over any of it. And there's nothing I can do really to, to change any of it. But I, I do have this little space that I can just tidy up and keep orderly. And that makes me feel safe and good. Yeah. And when that shit's all out of control, everything's out of control. Yeah. Now the whole world is out of control and my little safe space is out of control. And that's the way I see it, but my wife doesn't see it that way. For her, having that chaos all around, she doesn't, maybe because she, she's smarter than me and she she realizes whether this is cleaned up or, or chaotic, it's not gonna change anything.
1: <laughs> yeah, she, Whereas me- Yeah, she's not like satiated. She, we're like little rabbits with the carrot. Yeah. And she's more like, My wife has said that too. She's like making the bed. She's like, the bed, we're going to get in it tonight. My wife kind of sees the futility, the sisyphus, if you will, of making the bed every day. And for me, getting up and making the bed and like putting clothes on, even though I'm just going to come down here and make art. It's not like I'm going to the fucking bank. It's not like I'm a fucking notary at the goddamn bank. But I put on all my clothes and I make that fucking bed because it's almost like a symbol to me. And maybe it is because you and I are so... We, we we're so emotionally damaged that yeah. those types of little bitty boo-boo medicine boo-boos are like, dude, if I buy a Raymond Carver book on Amazon, it's like pouring medicine on my head. Yeah. Not even reading it yet. Just knowing that it's coming, knowing that I bought it. And my wife doesn't really do the retail therapy in that way either. Maybe that's maybe that's the key. I uh, dude, I don't know. My
0: wife tells me like she's been cleaning more lately, like which is great. Like the more she cleans the more I know that she's healthy in her head. Like yeah. mentally healthy. Right. And uh but she'll clean the kitchen and then it of course starts getting dirty almost immediately. Almost immediately there's dirty dish here, or there's something left out of the cupboard. And she's like, "Why clean? I just cleaned and now it's getting dirty again. Why do it?" And I'm like cuz if you don't Everything devolves into fucking chaos and horror. You have to stay on top of it. Yes, there's going to be another wave of of chaos coming in. And and yes, you're right. And it it is weird. As I've gotten older, I mean, I'm in my late 30s now. Uh, And when I say late 30s, I mean not only is the caterer already cleaned up everything and gone home and the cleaners have come and swept up the entire event and the next three events have happened. And also gone, that's how late I am in my 30s. Like, real
1: late. Okay, so what what are you learning in your late 30s?
0: Let me just say I'm not making it to work on time. That's how late I am in my
1: 30s. You're less uptight about these matters? Is that what you were going to say?
0: No! I used to look at people who like garden and cook and go, what are they doing? Why are they wasting their time cooking and
1: gardening? Right, but they're not wasting it.
0: And when I realized... Now that I'm cooking and gardening, Mm -hmm. is that, yes, these things are ephemeral. Making a meal and eating it is something that happens over the course of a couple hours. And I've always thought, well, what I need to do is I need to spend my time making art that will last for centuries. And as I've gotten older and closer to death, I realize, who cares? Who cares if my art lives for centuries? I won't be around to enjoy it. But I will be able to enjoy this meal. I will be able to enjoy this flower when it pokes its head out of the ground and w- winks at me with its red eye.
1: Yeah, you're, you're helping something grow. You're cultivating something that you can enjoy.
0: I can enjoy it now in my life. And things have changed. Like this whole idea like, oh, if I become like, if I get into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, somehow that's going to make my life better or I'll feel better about myself. No, it's not. What's going to make me feel better is loving, period. Yeah. Just loving. And and not loving will make me feel bad, period. See this little this little black thing that looks like a cannonball.
1: Thunk. Uh, another the only other thing other than loving, uh, with a pure heart that'll make you feel better is also going to the secret weekly with us, where you can go if you support the show on goddamn Patreon, p a t r e o n dot com slash the letters IOK. You're going to get a bunch of stuff over there. We're even brainstorming this morning about some t-shirts, all right, that maybe we'll give the patrons a crack at first before anyone else. But if you are just out there listening for Frizzle, we appreciate you too. You guys make the fucking world go round. And uh, if you can support us over there, that'd be awesome. If not, no big whoop. We're going to be back here next week regardless. Go listen to our other podcasts, Go leave us the review. Tell your friend about IOK and take care of yourselves. Bye. Bye. <laughs>